I guess how I feel is that if there's a straight character, it needs to be plot relevant. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Talking Simulator, a series of short conversations about video games with interesting people who play them. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and in this episode, I discuss the award-winning interactive novel Creme de la Creme with my guest, Hannah Powell-Smith. I'm Hannah Powell-Smith, and I'm a game writer, narrative designer, and interactive fiction creator. Hannah had already written a popular interactive novel for the Choice of Games Library, a fantasy story of crime, politics, and family called Blood Money. But their next title was an even bigger success. In Creme de la Creme, you are the 19-year-old child of formerly wealthy parents sent to a finishing school to restore your family name. The game is entirely text-based, with choices for you to make that change the events and outcome of the story, as well as deciding how, or indeed whether, to rebuild your reputation and exploring the dark secrets of the school, you can also make friends, take lovers, and even get engaged. Notably, your character can be female, male, or non-binary, and have relationships with other characters of any gender, in some cases with more than one character at a time. I had to know more about the process of writing such an ambitious game. We're here to talk about the game that you're most well-known for, I think it's fair to say, Crème de la Crème. How do you describe it to people who aren't familiar with this genre at all? So what I often start with is saying that it's like a choose-your-own-adventure book, but on the computer or phone. Sometimes people don't even know what that is. So (laughs) I sort of have to often just like wave my phone at them and show them it. But you might say it's a game that you read or an interactive novel is another way that it gets described. And then they, they kind of get it. Sometimes, yeah, they just have to see it to kind of understand because it's kind of niche. Um, But the nice thing about the choice of games sort of interface is that it's pretty simple. I think it was originally based on a kind of an ebook style of thing. So if someone doesn't have really any game experience, then it's quite a, a kind of straightforward thing to get to grips with quite quickly. And if someone is coming from that background of having no game experience, what do you think something like Creme de la Creme brings to them like what is the advantage for someone who's like i just love romance novels you know i read like one a week why would i play your game i think there's a degree of having fun kind of being immersed in the setting and with the characters and i think sometimes if someone comes in completely not knowing anything there's a degree of kind of going oh there's different endings like there's things that i'll see on one playthrough that will be completely different to another one and that really kind of blows people's minds sometimes which is great (laughs) and it's funny how sort of in the the games industry and being part of kind of games writing you can kind of take knowledge for granted about what a game is and Mm. what the experience is like and it's kind of interesting to sort of think about how that openness can really sort of be mind-boggling for people it's interesting to think about that audience as well as people that are much more experienced with things like visual novels or just interactive fiction in general or games as a whole so once you've got people willing to play the game what's your elevator pitch for the plot and the setup i'd say it's about being a kind of down at heel aristocrat semi-aristocrat 
trying to regain your family's reputation after they've trashed it. Going to boarding school, having adventures with trash aristocrats that make bad decisions and uncovering lots of secrets along the way and finding romance and friendship and connection in a very a very kind of strange, rarefied environment where people are always kind of watching you. There's a big sense of reputation and kind of social standing and you can also set fire to stuff if you want to um, (laughs) and be kind of chaotic or you can be a really straight-laced prefect and kind of work for the school and make your decisions like that. I think that in a way it's a fairly kind of traditional like boarding school story but with a lot more inclusivity and more inclusive romance certainly which is something that was important to me to have. I wanted to ask about working with choice of games and how that all works. Because I think a lot of people, even who work in what we might consider more traditional video games, might not know how this kind of process works. So do they kind of come to you and say, we need content for our platform, write us a game, or do you pitch them? How does that work? Yeah, so I originally pitched them back in, goodness me, it was so long ago. It was (laughs) like 2016, I think, or 17, like quite a while ago and what they ask for the for the choice of games line which is what i do is that i sent them my cv by that point i'd published a couple of interactive fiction pieces with a magazine called sub q which isn't around anymore but it's amazing and then that stage they asked me for a writing sample that was prose and they liked that and then they asked for a few kind of concept like paragraph pitches and they were like oh you can do one or the other of these and I I picked the one for blood money the ghost mafia one and then did an outline which is paid whether or not you get the outline accepted and the outline is kind of it's very much sort of figuring out the choice of games house style and like whether your stuff is a fit for it and how you handle that and that was very chill actually like I worried about it because it was my first (laughs) my first go and I was like oh I'm doing it wrong and that sort of thing but they were brilliant about it it took quite a while to kind of pin it down like now that I've got more experience I feel really confident I'm just like yeah I've got this it's fine (laughs) um and then after a while like once that was kind of solid that was green lit and then it's a case of you get an advance it's similar in some ways to book publishing so you Mm. you get advances based on the milestones that you get to you're assigned an editor who works with you maybe sometimes editors change but like I've always been with one editor from the start to the finish of the project which is really nice because they've got a lot of familiarity with it and yeah so it's like yeah going through milestones once you got to the milestone like you send it off to the editor and you get lots of editor notes and do revisions and then once you get to the end there's a big testing drive where it's like a closed beta testing and they do copy edits and yeah the the testing stage is quite wild because it's it's a bit chaotic like I always test like I test the individual chapters as I'm going and kind of keep an eye on things but it's that's a time where you just get tons of emails just being like what does this mean and I'm like I don't know this is something I wrote a year ago (laughs) yeah so once it's launched once it's earned out the advance then you get royalties like Mm. with a book which is lovely and it's not something that I've encountered in other interactive fiction publishers like normally it's it's more on a work for hire basis but it's really wonderful to have the royalties coming along while working on the new stuff and how does writing in choice script differ from just 
writing a book? And also, what does the system offer that others don't? Like, what's special about it? Yeah, so lots of people do it in different ways. There's a lot of interesting differences. But what I tend to do is I plan it like sometimes a bit like a mind map and sometimes sort of scene by scene in bullet points with like and this goes this way if this happens sort of um sort of feeling and i i i do that on paper to start with and then i do all the code but i think i think for me the the biggest thing to think about when doing interactive fiction is at least with the choice of games house style i should say qualifying <laughs> is that there isn't like one perfect path that you can do it's not a thing where you're sort of going oh this is the story or like this is the best way of doing it it's very much about kind of figuring out both sort of the scope of the different branches that you can do and whether that's manageable and also thinking about like how how failure can be fun or like funny or interesting or tense rather than it sort of being like oh you failed it's not a thing like with some of the choose your own adventures where it's like oh you failed you're dead now you have to start again (laughs) yeah it's it's a lot to keep in your head and I think something that I've learned to my cost is to kind of write down and keep track of everything, all the different plot points on the different, like where the characters might be at at any given point. Because even with Krem, actually, I there were points where I would have to kind of furiously like go back into chapters and kind of comb through them and be like, I'm sure I wrote this thing. But because it's, uh, it's a good practice for writing a book as well, but like because of all the branching, there's a lot more kind of room for things like continuity errors and things just not quite fitting together or like not quite flowing. Mm. You keep talking about coding. Is it really like hardcore coding or is it simpler than that? I think that it's fairly simple, but I'm someone that did a lot of modding when I was a teenager. So I, I had a sense of kind of how to do kind of the cause and effect and checking on something that had been done before in the game already. But having said that, my wife also has done choice of games games and she has a lot less experience with doing code and she found it really good. And like, yeah, I think it's fairly designed to be something that is accessible to people that don't have a computer science background, which I don't, to be fair. I just like did it as a hobby for quite a while. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't need to be a programmer. And I think actually, I, I think some programmers have found it a bit frustrating because it is a bit more simple than, than other things. <laughs> the main thing where it differs from something like Twine is that Twine has a kind of graphical interface where it's like a mind map where you're, mm. you connect the nodes to each other and it's all very separated out. Whereas in ChoiceScript, it's in a text file. But it kind of depends how your brain works really (laughs) mine works for the text file better i think whereas i find with twine it i find it a bit hard to make it feel like a kind of big picture thing rather than just lots of little bits that are joined together Mm. and you have a game development background as well you're you were telling me before the call that your dad made games yes yeah so he used to make he used to make educational like software games for schools it must have been like in the 90s time-wise. Yeah, so I always sort of had a sense of games as something that could be done. <laughs> but he, he he was more on the programming side of things. And I sort of knew that I was interested in becoming a game writer, but I didn't really know how that happened <laughs> and how, how you would do that. <laughs> and that sort of uncertainty carried through to when I was at uni and like going to careers talks and things and being like, how does this happen? And they were like, I don't really know. Which meant that <laughs> it, it was quite a while before I before I got into the industry, I guess. It was really like really when twine 
and started becoming a thing. I was like, oh, this reminds me of like the modding that I did when I was a teenager. I bet I can do this. And then I could and then sort of went from there. In the game, you've got these character stats that you kind of calculate and use to determine what consequences happen from certain choices. How did you decide which stats to go for? Why did you decide to have stats at all? And how do they kind of affect the story? Yeah, so the deciding to have stats, that's an easy answer because that's the choice of games house style. And so I knew that I, I knew that I needed that because it's, it's how the success and failure are determined and sort of the different levels of the stats and what you've achieved help inform like the later part of the game and what happens there. What I was thinking about when I was making the stats was I wanted it to feel really kind of soaked in the genre. So you've got poise, which is sort of doing things calmly and being like smooth and composed and then flair which is like being a bit flashy and maybe dancing really fancily or being on stage something like that and then spirit i was thinking about like school spirit Um, that kind of feeling of like in sort of school stories where you're like oh yeah that's a plucky (laughs) a plucky person there so i think that was sort of what i was thinking about and i wanted to help the stats inform the sort of thing that you'd be doing so that if you look at the stats screen you can be like okay well this isn't a game that's about violence because there isn't a violence Mm. so i think i kind of get a sense of this but i'm curious about your motivations for this setting because i know kind of as a society or at least the kind of more progressive parts of society we're moving away from idealizing things like boarding schools so i wonder why you decided to pick that for your setting yeah so when i was when i was originally coming up with it i just finished writing blood money which is it's much more fantastical there's ghosts and magic in it and that's about being in a kind of upper class mafia in a very kind of dodgy tropical city where you're able to summon ghosts and use them against your enemies. And I was thinking about like kind of having a more social focused setting that was very polite because <laughs> um, there's a lot of violence in Blood Money, which is great. And I, I wanted to sort of explore how to give players agency in a setting that's got a lot of restrictions in terms of behaviour and that sort of thing. And actually <laughs> one of the motivations was that in Blood Money, there's a lot of female characters and And some people were like, I feel alienated by there being so many women in this. How do I handle this? (laughs) And so I was like, okay, well, I want to make something that is in a setting that it's like a finishing school and you can play as male or non-binary in it. But it's a very sort of feminine coded sort of environment where Mm. you're having to be very polite you're sort of dealing with these social situations by being kind of attractive and poised and graceful and that sort Mm. of thing Uh, so I was sort of like well if you felt alienated by that then I'll do some more alienation I guess (laughs) (laughs) but I definitely wanted to be a bit subversive I've been thinking for a while about how to make something in this sort of quite traditional sort of school story setting like with those kind of schooly tropes i guess while making it so that you can be gay and you can have polyamorous relationships and the setting supports that it's not that you're sort of having to hide things Mm. i wanted to make i guess a bit of a, a kind of romance and adventure romp where you can be like my character's gay and that's not 
a thing that is oppressive or it's not a problem for the main character that's so fine they've got other problems <laughs> but it's sort of having that kind of game where you can play a gay character a non-binary character and that that's not the point of the game and you can have that kind of adventurous enjoyment without it being a thing where you're having to like sneak around or that kind of thing because i think like a bunch of the literature that i was thinking about with it either it's completely kind of romanceless and sexless like something like Enid Blyton which is what it is and like incredibly racist as well or it's very like oh there's like some gay people but something horrible happens to them because of it or they're never able to be together or that kind of thing and I just wanted to give players with different sexualities and uh, genders a chance to kind of have fun in this kind of setting mm -hmm. and it's sort of like the the problems that the players face are a bit more removed from sort of real life problems it's sort of a bit of escapism <laughs> i guess <laughs> i'm curious about writing a romance that's set in boarding school because i mean you have sex scenes they are mostly fade to black but when thinking about kind of writing sex scenes for characters who are in technically a school environment I mean, in England, where the age of consent is 16, it's obviously fine. But you've got like American players where sometimes the age of consent is a bit older. How do you kind of make sure that nobody feels like anybody is doing anything inappropriate in your game? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this was something I was thinking about like a lot at the beginning. And I, I actually I tweaked the settings so that they're all 19. I wanted to sort of show readers that like everyone's of age in that respect. I was really cautious about things like anyone spying on anybody or like walking in on people and that sort mm -hmm. of thing because I could see in some games or like media of that genre that that could be a thing but I wanted to like help readers feel sort of comfortable even if there's like a bit of like tension of like oh the like this is a bit of a thrill but I didn't mm -hmm. want it to be like this feels like it's dangerous so mm -hmm. I was quite careful about making all the sex scenes be in places where you can reliably think that you've got or feel that you've got privacy. So like all of the ones that are in the school, it's like you go off to the common room where you've got like you're away from everybody kind of feeling. Mm. And then you can have a funny bit where like Hartman, who's quite straight laced, is like, but it's a communal area. Like, <laughs> but that's more of a sort of silly moment rather than a kind of gross moment. Mm. And then with other characters, it's like you can go to a hotel or you can like be with Carson in their house. Something with choice of games is that it's very much like thinking about consent and giving players the chance to opt out if they're not comfortable. So what I always do is like if you're having a moment where you're kissing like then you can be like do I want to go further or do I want to like stick with this or do I want to like slow it down and I never have the characters like be pressuring like they're just like yeah this, that makes sense it's fine I kind of wanted to model that because just kind of having a sense of like even like once you've opted into something knowing that it's like this is a sex scene but it's nice to have the opportunity even if a player doesn't necessarily take the opportunity to back out from it i think it's important to show it because it shows that the game is aware that someone might want to and mm -hmm. it's not going to have a bad consequence if you do that that was very important to me especially because the characters are i mean they're 19 but that is young so like yeah, <laughs> yeah. so that's that's something that i always do 
You mentioned Enid Blyton. Did you, I wouldn't say necessarily draw inspiration, but just kind of keep in mind any other fiction? Yeah, so I did think about Enid Blyton quite a lot, like in some ways sort of going against what's there. I have a really strong memory, like in primary school, reading the Mallory Towers books. And there's an end bit where when they're about to leave and the head teacher is like, oh, like so-and-so girl, like she's just like going to go to parties and like hang out with boys and, and all the other characters are like, oh no, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, which is just, just very odd. It's a very, um, a very strange thing. But I I got the title from The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And I thought about that a lot when I was writing. I think the new teacher called Miss Dalka, who comes in and is quite like progressive, mm. it was like a little bit drawn from that. Although, obviously, in in the Prime of Machine Brody, spoilers, like she's a fascist. Um, <laughs> Miss Dalka is not, but there is the sense of sort of the head teacher kind of disapproving of the teachers. And in that book, there's a lot of drama between the teachers and kind of having love triangles and things. And mm. I kind of drew from that. And let's think, there's a series. I now can't remember whether I read it when I was writing Creme or whether that was later, called Murder Most Unladylike by Robin Stevens. What did you like about Murder Most Unladylike? Oh, I I felt like there's a lot of subversion in there. I like that there are gay characters that exist and there's a lot more racial inclusivity and thoughtfulness and just a sense that the world is larger than this sort of pastoral, like weird boarding school environment. Mm. One of the most popular features of your game in particular, one of the things people talk about the most is the variably gendered characters, which we've already talked about. So giving players the option to either set genders. So like, I want all of the romanceable characters to be girls or whatever, or to have them randomly assigned, which I think is what you suggest on your first playthrough. What I'm curious about with this is when you're writing characters that you know could be any gender, Do you have subconsciously a gender in mind for any of them? So the reason I ask this is because I once saw a talk by someone who writes games and she was talking about trying to write more diverse and inclusive games. And she said one thing she does to avoid subconscious bias on her own part is to write all of her characters as male and then change the genders afterwards. Because as a society, we assume that male characters are able to do anything they want to do. So how do you approach this? I very much see them as sort of like a composite entity (laughs) like they're just sort of there (laughs) and I don't really see them as gendered at all which is really interesting because I've had people say I think it was talking about Rosario the foreign royal that you can romance and I had multiple people be like they seem really girly and they seem really male (laughs) and they were like basically being like this is obviously written that they're male or female and I was like okay well I'm doing something I don't know whether I'm doing something right but I'm doing something there but I I tend to sort of try and see them as characters apart from gender and sometimes I change what they might be wearing but I tend to not necessarily change like much about their appearance particularly because I've seen somewhere it's like the male character is a lot taller than the female one I'm like I can't really be bothered with that (laughs) do that a for writing effort purposes but also I don't really want to do stereotypes like that mm-hmm. yeah I I feel like I write them fairly genderlessly but who knows I, I'm sure like 
I've got my own kind of biases with that. And there's the sort of danger of of sort of assuming that genderless means masculine, which mm. you kind of run into. But it's very interesting what that talk was saying, because when I write the it in the code, it's usually he. So like the pronoun variable is he mm. rather than anything else. So like I'd be interested to assess myself and see if I changed it to she, like whether that would change anything or whether mm. it would just be the same or if I changed it to they. But it's interesting because when I was writing for Love Island, the game, which is obviously a really different situation, but when we had gender variable characters there, we used she as the default. And I know that sometimes there were things where this variable character did something that might seem okay from a female character, but when a male character did it, like when it was play tested, it was like, oh, that's a bit forward or a bit feels a bit creepy, mm. which I think is its own very interesting question and kind of how different behaviors are seen from people of different genders. But yeah, so I think when I'm doing my stuff, I see them as fairly amorphous. <laughs> and it's quite interesting because I think something that I've been working on is making the characters feel more physically specific and kind of mm. with more description of how they look and I wonder whether the kind of sense of amorphousness in my head sort of translates to maybe them not seeming as specific in terms of how they appear but we'll see with my later ones whether people feel like they know exactly what they look like. Another thing that kind of goes alongside that is because the player character can be any gender you have the romanceable characters have no sexual preferences and this always interests me when talking about games in which you can romance characters, the difference between different games in the Dragon Age series, where in one of them, the characters have sexual preferences, and there are some you can't romance if you're a woman or a man, and in others, all of them are available to any player character. What do you think is the ideal approach? So I I think there's room for both. I like in Dragon Age Inquisition that Dorian is a gay character and that's part of his character and his story. I don't think there's a great need for, say, Cullen to be straight. I guess how I feel is that if there's a straight character, it needs to be plot relevant. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you just throw straight characters into your video games for no reason? <laughs> I know, it's not realistic. So I think I think there's value to having gay characters like Sarah as well. But I think I also really value player choice and... I think for me, I personally like to be able to romance everybody if I want to, because I don't really want to be having to think about what my character's gender is. But also, I find it sad in Dragon Age 2 that the characters don't generally talk about being bisexual or pansexual. And like, there's the thing of where Anders doesn't, like, he doesn't talk about his ex-boyfriend if you're a woman, it's only if you're a guy. So... I feel like that's kind of the worst of both, really, because it's sort of erasing that. What I tried to do with Creme is, I guess, because the characters are generally quite young and some of them haven't like had much romantic experience. But where they do talk about it, I try to mention that. Obviously, people can be by no matter what their romantic experience is. But what I want is for there not to be a sense of kind of plausible deniability about a character. So there are a couple of characters that mention exes and those ex characters. I'm thinking of especially August, who's the child of your head teacher. And there's a point where they talk about how the head teacher kind of sabotaged their relationship with someone else back in the day. And it's either that it's that this ex character is the same gender as August, or it's that they 
are a different gender from the main character. So mm. I like to I like to show that, but I think it's it's imperfect because I don't want to imply in any way that like you must have 50-50 amounts of experience with different genders as a bi person, then you get your bi card revoked because that is that's terrible. <laughs> I'm interested in how you balance a world where you've kind of chosen to completely get rid of some forms of oppression. So people are not oppressed because of their race, as far as I can tell in the game, and because of their gender and sexual preferences. But there are obviously still class structures and there are a lot of kind of deep-seated problems in this finishing school. How do you decide what is okay to keep and what isn't? And how do you balance a world written around that? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think a lot of the time I was thinking about it feeling kind of exaggerated in a way that makes it, I guess, a bit more removed from an average person's experience. So the situation that the main character's parents are in is that they've lost their fortune because of various, there's various different branches of what they could have done, like gambling or supporting a bad political candidate that turned out to be a fraud. But they are like they're still they're still rich like they're fine (laughs) it's sort of that thing where like in some of the Jane Austen novels where they're like oh we've lost all our money we've only got like three horses and it's like yeah (laughs) you know and like the parents in this like they've still got a servant and they've got a very nice apartment that like most people would be perfectly happy with and I wanted to sort of make it a bit more yeah a bit more exaggerated a bit more removed from what like most people would experience in the real world. I feel like prejudices in Westerlin are more about sort of your estate has been in your family for only three generations as opposed to six. <laughs> I feel like that sort of prejudice I'm I'm okay with showing because it's kind of ridiculous and I feel like people that have a generational estate are kind of okay. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. mind sort of representing that if that makes sense. I mean, you have characters like Carson, right? Who's the kind of servant of the school, I guess. So I guess you are exploring class differences, but it sounds like the whole point of this game was to give people an escapist fantasy. So you're putting all of them in a comfortable position and removing oppression as far as race and and gender and sexual preference and things. Yeah. And I think with Carson, they're in a really tough situation and they're being exploited by the villain. And if I was doing it again, I think I might handle that differently in terms of them kind of being manipulated and exploited in that way. But on the other hand, it's a sort of thing where like the main villain is evil and she's kind of blackmailing them and making use of her reputation and her money and her position to be able to to exploit them in that way. I mean, it sounds like you're saying, you know, for all that we want to provide escapist fantasies, sometimes we have to show some forms of oppression. It's true. Because it's a thing that exists in the world and you have villains in your stories and they need to have people to be villainous towards. Yeah, there's going to have to be tension that is brought by villainous characters and the kind of conflict there. I'm not sure whether I would do it exactly like that again, where it's kind of a servant character that's being exploited and having to navigate that. And actually with the with the later in progress games that I'm making in the series, I'm doing the villains differently. So it's kind of interesting exploring that as well. 
have you announced that you're working on a sequel? Yes, the big sequel is called Royal Affairs, and it is where you are, you're the middle child of the royal family of Westerlin, and you are going to the other school. I don't know how to pronounce it. I wrote it. and <laughs> I... Archibald or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Archibald. I don't know. I panic every time I have to say it. But... <laughs> So you're going to that one, which is the school that's kind of neighbour to the finishing school in Creme de la Creme. And broadly, it's the the more like masculine quote, lots of air quotes, one where people learn to be leaders and like political leaders or economists or sort of uh, potentially like head army officers and do, doing like strategy and stuff like that and I say I say masculine but like in the setting there isn't any genderedness about it it's more mm. about the people that are landed gentry and like have titles and in creme de la creme there are uh, three characters that you can romance from from that school and they're quite remote and it's sort of like wow they're so like fancy there's a royal person and there's the child of your head teacher and then there's a child of a baronet who doesn't really want to be a leader at all and is just like <laughs> loungy like louche person that, that wants to just have fun very sexy <laughs> i love florin i Me too <laughs> they were really fun to write because whenever i wrote them i was like i know exactly what they're gonna say like they're just gonna be obnoxious i get messages from people that are like i love florin would would they settle down with my character at some point and i'm like i don't know i don't i'm not sure if they would i don't want to break your heart <laughs> like but yes so in royal affairs you're at that school you've been sent there by your mum because the royal family is sort of it's got a bit of a reputation for being a bit out of touch with the kind of common quote experience. And so of course you get sent to the most fancy school in like the entire country because that's like the, the common area. And so you're being quite pushed into a relationship with the younger child of the royal family of a neighbouring country called Zaledo, but they don't like you for reasons that will become clear um, later on. And you're having to navigate that, you're being kind of pushed at them, you've got a bodyguard that maybe under some circumstances may be crushing on you, and you've got various other people that you can befriend or romance, like a, a firebrand that wants to upend the political, like, voting system and wants to make universal suffrage and like a really lovely ballet dancer who is just really traditional and wants to like make a name for themselves and and that's been really interesting to do i'm about just over halfway through writing it at the moment unfortunately the pandemic took a toll on progress with it which is a shame but it's been really interesting writing from a perspective where you've got such more power and influence and so it's been really cool thinking about ways that the world can challenge you as that kind of character in that position because like broadly a lot of the characters and a lot of the setting wants to make life easy for you because they're like oh if we befriend this person then we'll get stuff but that brings its own challenges because you have to sort of go oh are they really wanting to like get to know me or are they wanting to get close to a royal person and you've got a lot more kind of nationwide things to think about 
because there's a lot of kind of political rumblings going on, but your mum is a bit like, you just need to do your school stuff. And we'll talk about that when you're like a couple of years older and you're like, but there's all these protests and like riots and things about the voting and sort of what's happening in parliament. And she's like, they're there, just go off and <laughs> go off and play tennis. And, and also there's a kind of sense that everyone, like, although in Creme de la Creme, there is scrutiny because there's kind of knowledge about your parents' situation, sort of people going, oh, like, are they a bit dodgy being from that family? Whereas in Royal Affairs, everyone sort of has a very strong idea of who you are, and that may not match reality, or it might, you might want to kind of break away from that. And like, yeah, you're very famous. So it's sort of all about like, figuring out how to navigate that and how you feel about it and how you're going to deal with the sort of larger scale political stuff that's coming up. So presumably you wouldn't even be considering a sequel if Creme de la Creme hadn't done well. So what has the reaction been like and did it meet your expectations? Oh my goodness, it exceeded it by like so much. I was so delighted, like sort of Blood Money did well and it did better than I expected. And then Creme like just sort of shot through that completely. I, I, I was just really shocked actually, like it wasn't something that I expected at all. And it's just delightful. Like it's now been out for almost like next week, it will be two years. And like, I regularly get messages from people saying that they really like it. And it's still selling, like it's still selling well. (laughs) And I'm just like, it feels like a dream, honestly. I don't know what the special source was (laughs) exactly that sort of got eyes on it. Like what amused me was that a while after it came out, I, I went onto Tumblr for the first time in about seven years and saw that people were like doing memes about it. which was just wild. So I think there's a degree of, well, I know that there's a degree of audience on there. But yeah, like, I wasn't expecting that at all. So that was really wonderful. And I hope that Royal Affairs and the next project kind of live up to that. They're like, the people are into it. If you want to try Creme de la Creme for yourself, you can get it on Steam or download the Choice of Games app so you can play it in bed like I did. Let me know how your story turns out by tweeting me at Jerrica Weber and keep up with Hannah's work on the sequel and more by following them at H-P-O-W-E-L-L-S-M-I-T-H. You can also follow this podcast at Talking Simpod or even send us an email at talkingsimulatorpod at gmail.com. People are very nice to me about this podcast, which is good for my ego, but the best way to support the show is to tell other people about it, or even leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Our music is by Jazz Mickle. You can find her at J-A-Z-Z-M-I-C-K-L-E. Talking Simulator is mixed by Lemmington's loveliest audio person, Dan Parks. If you need to make something sound good, you can find him at D-A-N-C-P-A-R-K-E-S. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Talk again soon. telling my parents about it my dad was like oh it's that it's really intelligent that's really cool (laughs) he used to make educational games like for schools and stuff he's got a kind of understanding which is nice because like some of my 
other friends that do game writing they're like my parents don't understand at all <laughs> like wow. no one I know in real life gets it kind of thing 